Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knackstead once again for Conversation in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with Marshila Devon from Elite Communications. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, Marshila. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, in a lot of the episodes of the podcast, we've invited dermatologists to speak about either their research or their experience in leadership, but I've always felt that that's a relatively incomplete representation of leadership and sort of self-management. And so I have always considered communication to be one of the, the key things that we can probably all uh, improve on. So I'm very happy to have you on this podcast. But I want to have our listeners sort of learn a little bit more about you. So if you just want to start us off sort of sharing uh, your background, how you got to be involved with communications and, and coaching communication, and we'll go from there. Yeah, my, my pleasure. First of all, Thomas, I am a wannabe dermatologist. And as a result, I've been a part of the leadership forum for, oh, 10 years plus. If anybody doesn't know about it, you've got to, you have to inquire. It's a fun weekend. We prepare future leaders in dermatology. And really help people to understand advocacy, policymaking. And where my connection is, is I do the effective communication portion of that wonderful weekend. But we'll go back. I won't go back too far. But listen, I was the kid who was always comfortable speaking. I would find the shy person in the corner. I would engage them. I was the one first to kind of volunteer on doing oral presentations. But at the same time, I was always in trouble for talking. I ended up you know, doing lots of detention. But what I found out later is this skill set served me well. Class president, I ended up, I would say, in graduate school, getting the B plus versus, excuse me, getting the A plus versus the B because of really having that ability to articulate my, my thoughts and my ideas. And I think that that's what our conversation today is really going to be about, is really getting people comfortable understanding that this skill set will serve you well, both professionally and personally. Wonderful. And so I, I guess the, the question I, I always have is somebody who has now really grown to love public speaking, but certainly as a high schooler, middle schooler, was very awkward about it. What is it about it as an art form that you enjoy so much? Mm -hmm. For me, I actually think that anybody can be a confident, competent communicator. And I, I really want people to have a mind shift from public speaking, because to your point, when you're 
younger, you're, you're like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. Have the mind shift and think of it as just being a confident communicator. And then as a result, you do that every day. Every time we open our mouth, we are in essence making a presentation. And what's interesting is my academic background doesn't really dovetail to what I'm doing. I was poli-sci undergraduate at UCLA. I got a teaching credential and an MBA from UC Irvine. But I found that working in business wasn't quite a fit. And I came to really love this idea of doing what I'm doing now, which is this idea of helping healthcare professionals communicate effectively. I think for me, it's every time I look at somebody, even if it's just socially, I'm looking at how they communicate. How do we get our message across effectively? Paying attention to body language. It just doesn't feel like work for me. And I would say that is what I love about public speaking slash communicating effectively. And, and certainly to give credit to the, the course that you mentioned, which is the American Academy of Dermatology Leadership Workshop, which does have a great communications portion. Uh, our ACMS members will know that the Mose College is currently rolling out its first year of a very similar uh, type of program. So it'll be exciting to see the similarities and differences between the two programs. When I think about speaking and the communication, at least for the purpose of, of talking about it, I think most of us feel much more comfortable in a small setting. So that's sort of your small group, your one-on-one, -on -one, which has its own set of challenges. And then there's the first time that I'm invited to speak at the annual meeting of the Mose College in front of 2,000 to 2,500 attendees. And so I want to start with that scenario first. Um, I watch the news and I read books and I think about people like Winston Churchill, Barack Obama or his, his wife, um, John F. Kennedy. And there's some people who just historically have always been considered great orators, great speakers. Is there something we can take from those individuals to, to guide us? Or do you have another way that we can readily improve how we communicate in that type of setting? Without a doubt. I think that everybody that you mentioned have three things that are in common. And to your long, to your list, I'd even add JFK, Ronald Reagan. And when I thought about this, I would say that the first of the three things that all these folks have, which we can all have, is this idea of authenticity. They are comfortable with who they are. They're comfortable in their skin. You get a sense of whatever they're talking about, their passion. And I've been blessed to really coach a lot of healthcare professionals. And the first thing I tell them is be who you are. The skill sets are an overlay over your personality. So this idea of authenticity, former President Obama, charming, JFK, charming. The other thing that all of these folks have in common, which we ourselves can mimic, would be this idea that they are including personal stories. In the professional setting that you're mentioning, of course, you can't go long, but you can say things like, in my experience, you can give us examples. 
that immediately pulls people in and, and then we are relatable. And then the third thing, again, we can all mimic is strong delivery skills. Everything from smiling to your eye contact to what you're doing with your hands. Do you know the quickest way for us to endear someone is to just simply smile? You're going to be on podium, the camera's on you. If you look pleasant, we immediately go, I like that guy. I often say to people, how long does it take somebody to draw an impression of you? Absolute seconds. That alone, you, you start off smiling, you make direct eye contact. I want to go back to your comment of one-on-one -on -one or small group to large group. Do you know in a setting, say 500, 1,000, it's the same thing. I literally want you to look at that audience, break it into quadrants, but literally try to look at a quadrant like you are making eye contact and it will be perceived like you are talking to people. And we can go into more detail on the strong delivery skills, but to recap, I would say what makes a good speaker, the three things that I've picked are this idea of authenticity, your ability to tell personal stories, to connect with the audience, and your strong delivery skills. I, I think those are um, excellent points. The The people I mentioned, though, they have this sort of intangible. They've got, um, they're very charismatic. And mm -hmm. while I don't know this, they certainly come across as extroverted. And while there are extroverts in the medical profession, I would say many of us aren't. To what degree does that make a difference? Is it a sort of fake it till you make it in terms of your openness or does extroversion, introversion really have nothing to do with it? Well, I wouldn't say it doesn't have anything to do with it, but Thomas, immediately I smiled when you said fake it till you make it. And, and that is really it. It's there are certain skill sets that people identify, which again is connected to our nonverbal behavior. If I project myself as confident, you then believe me to be confident. If I am in front and I'm nervous, I'm touching my person a lot, I'm fidgeting, then what happens is we make the audience nervous. And the audience wants all speakers to be successful. I always try to get people to understand that. Nobody says, oh my God, I hope Marshila is going to be really boring because then we're going to be tortured for 30 minutes. No, people want you to be successful. A lot of it is in our head. For the people that are, are shyer, it just comes down to practice. It's a skill set that you can master. And we're not really wanting you per se to change your personality. But again, be mindful of these nonverbal behaviors. I, I want to dive into the um, delivery skills because they're really one of the most actionable items. And I just caught myself saying, um, which reminds me of our leadership weekend, which has been so memorable, largely because we had the opportunity to stand in front of a group of our peers and start a presentation. And you were kind enough every time we included a um or started a sentence with so 
or in an otherwise not really relevant way, we had the privilege of starting that sentence or that presentation over. And that, that has had such a lasting effect on me to the point where now I really can't go in front of a group but to remember that one instance. So maybe that's a good starting point for talking about delivery skills. Absolutely. It's a good starting point as it relates to delivery skills. I want you to first think about your eye contact. I say to people, when you want to make a point, where do you look? You look directly at somebody. As we are making our presentations, I tell people before you even open your mouth, always access a pair of eyes. How do we know that learning is imparted if we are not looking at the receivers of our message? Whether it's one-on-one -on -one or one to a group, make that eye contact. The first skill is eye-to-eye, -eye, make a point, then you move to another pair of eyes, make another point. You do not transition speaking until you have first accessed the eyes. Just this idea of direct eye contact will make you come across more credible and it will instill trust to the listeners. The next thing on delivery skills is voice. Oftentimes people think I'm just saying, be loud. No, there are three components of the voice. I want the volume, yes, being up. Think of one being barely audible, 10 blowing out the lights. Stay in the range of six to eight. It adds natural variability. Then we say gestures. Now people get confused on this one. They'll say, oh, Marshila, I, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood or I'm Italian. I use a lot of gestures. I think that's fine. It, it's personal. But the key that catches people's eyes is if you have big gestures, that scares people. It's like, uh-oh, what's going on here? Think more natural, neutral. I use my hands and then I rest them. Use them and then lose them. If you're on podium, I beg you, do not do what I call the clamp on. People clamp onto the side of the podium like they're taking a jet ski into the ocean. And it's painful because then you, you pull the body down. Gestures should be use them, rest them at your side. At the podium, what's interesting, we say you have to clear the podium. If you are standing behind it and you're gesturing, we call that flipper because nobody can see your hands. And from far in the back of the room, especially if it is a large group, you're gonna look like the talking head. Like we can't see your hands, we just see your head. You have to get the gestures waist above. All right, eye contact make it, voice animated, gestures natural, neutral. Posture, you wanna be balanced, mainly because it screams of confidence. But in many of the medical meetings that I coach, the physicians love to be on the move. They are rocking out, moving quite a bit. Movement is great, but the idea should be purposeful movement. I move, I get still. I move, I get still. And then, Thomas, to your point, the fillers. The fillers are the ums, the ahs, you knows. All of those, the best thing we can do is when we hear them, we stop and it's almost like rebooting. And we put the word that we're thinking. We try to get people to think, don't open your mouth, 
until you know what you're going to say. The reason why the fillers come in is not because you don't know what you're going to say. It's because you're thinking, um, um, what am I going to say? Many books call them connectors because they fall as we connect one thought to the next. Other books call them fillers because we're filling the space. I'm going to pause there. Do you think it's possible to practice or rehearse away fillers for an individual presentation, or is it simply something that comes with months, years of giving different talks over and over again? All right. I love that question. You can get rid of them literally very quickly by practicing, and it doesn't have to be your presentation. And what's nice, Thomas, is you're taking me back to my beginning. This idea of public speaking to me is communication skills 24-7. Now, if you, if you go down this route, I would say get a friend or somebody that can coach you. And, and maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a girlfriend, and say, hey, I want to get rid of these fillers. Will you let me know every time you hear an um or a so? Be careful. I did it with my husband. He did not even last 20 minutes. And he's like, I don't want to do this anymore. With my daughters when they were younger, I would put a jar on the table and say, anytime I hear an um or so, you have to put in a quarter of your babysitting money. I actually started way younger than babysitting time. They were grade school. What it netted for our family is we always knew what was happening. We always had a conversation. Everyone's very verbal. Whoever had the fewest amount of fillers at the end got all the money. What we can do as professionals is just listen. I believe that we each are our best coach. The minute you start hearing them, you are on the road to getting rid of them, and you will not have them in your presentation. They're in your lexicon, you have to hear them, and then you can get rid of them, without a doubt. I imagine that even with the best of preparation and without any fillers or connectors, when I next have an invitation to speak, I will no doubt still be nervous. Correct. Does nerves ever go away? Should they go away? Or are we sort of glad that we have a degree of anxiety about public speaking? I don't think they do go away. And I believe that we have to embrace them. Nerves, people will have a a physiological reaction to speaking. And then what happens is the body feels threatened and it starts to prepare for battle. And we feel the anxiety, the sweaty hands, the racing heart. I think of a story when I had literally first got into this profession. I was working in business. I didn't feel it was a fit because I just didn't have a lot of family time. And it turns out that a neighbor had a presentation skills company and he just, he didn't even know me. And he said, I think you'll be a fit. And the first gig is in Hawaii for two days working with healthcare professionals. I was so nervous. And yet, remember, I told you I was the kid that loved talking. 
but the, the stakes were high. And this guy wasn't particularly friendly. And he said, don't blow it or you'll never work again. As I stood up in front of this group of physicians, the sweat was like drip, 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 drip. I mean, I, I didn't think I would survive, but I powered through it. And at the end, several people came up and they said, oh my God, that was amazing. You were better than your boss. What I took away from that is, first of all, no oversharing. Many times people will say in the beginning of their presentation, I'm really nervous. When I get nervous, I turn red. Or when I get nervous, this happens. Don't tell people you're nervous. We are not going to know. And what you can do is know that this is natural. All of that stuff is natural. But if in fact you do things to combat the nerves, for example, you can practice relaxation tips or techniques. Before you even get up, do deep breathing. But what do most people do? They get up and they go, <sighs> they do that big cleansing breath. Do it before you've even been called up. The other thing I would suggest, trick your, trick your mind. Tell yourself, use positive self-talk. Everyone's gonna love me. I have a lot to share. They are gonna actually benefit from my talk. I am a good speaker. I am a confident communicator. These things will help you. I'm gonna steal one of your things, Thomas, which is then fake it till you make it. Stand tall, plant yourself, smile. All of those nonverbals will help you. The other thing is then do not start with a filler because most people will start with fillers and it's a trigger for us, the audience, to say, oh my goodness, she's really nervous. I would say the fourth thing I would throw out is prepare and practice. Somebody once said, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. That preparation and practice piece is key. You could be driving in your car just thinking about what you want to say. And then the fifth thing I would say is seek as many opportunities as you can to speak. If you really get nervous about public speaking or communicating in groups, then jump into the fire, volunteer at your church, do some kind of civic talk within your office. Maybe there's something that you went on vacation and you want to give people a five, 10 minute synopsis of your vacation. All of these things will help. And again, to recap what you can do for your nervousness, practice relaxation techniques, trick your mind, do that positive self-thought, fake it till you make it, preparation and practice, and then seek as many opportunities as possible. But what we have to realize to the point that you made, Thomas, it happens. We have to embrace it. I believe people say, get all the ducks or the geese flying in the same direction with the nerves to kind of manage it. But that adrenaline will actually help you. And then I would say anything that you've learned that you want to add to the conversation of dealing with nerves, because it is big. Right. One of the things that I've noticed in some of our listeners may have seen a trend here as well. In the past few months, we've had more speakers that are talking about things other than 
science and numbers. Mm -hmm. And I found mm -hmm. that the recording of those podcasts is much easier than when we're actually talking about a scientific manuscript, for example. And so the question I have for you, Marshila, is how do I deliver a conventional scientific or abstract talk in front of our audience? If I paint the picture, usually we've got 10 to 12 minutes and we're presenting a topic we're very knowledgeable on, let's say melanoma epidemiology, or we're presenting our own research. Regardless, they tend to be relatively number-heavy topics. And I, I find it much more difficult to be engaging to the audience when I'm fundamentally just sharing facts mm -hmm. compared to when I'm giving a talk on work-life balance or creating a mission and vision. This is a challenge that everybody has when it comes to content. And I think that you have to come out of the gate by telling us what are the key points. And in your mind, people have to think nice to know, need to know, must know. But in many of those conversations, what I see is people go long. They are too much in the weeds in the numbers and the content. And what we should be doing is looking at that slide and saying, what is the most important point? Nice to know, need to know, must know. Then you get to the next slide. It's don't go too far in the detail. When we look at what people pay attention to in a presentation, and this data comes from a guy by the name of Albert Moravian, and he says that any presentation falls into three channels of delivery, verbal your content, vocal your voice, visual what we see. The content, right or wrong, is only about 7%. The balance is 93% voice and visual. Our job in telling a story when it comes to very content-rich slides is to paint the picture of key data points. You have a content-rich slide. You want to give me all of the detail. That is the first mistake. We call that the knowledge sickness. You're trying to tell us too much. You have to say things like, this slide has a lot of great information. Here's the one key point I want you to know. Get to the next slide. Here's the two things I want you to know. Then after you've gone through, let's say, three to four slides, it's, it's really going to be your call. Wrap it up for us. That way you're keeping it more as a story versus a data dump. This is the challenge that I have in coaching healthcare professionals probably every day. They believe that people want all that detail, but if you can open that talk by saying, here's what I want you to know, and I think we've all heard this, tell them what you're gonna tell them, tell them what you told them, and then tell them again what you told them. And so it's this idea of pulling out key messages and then at the end, repeating those key messages. People will love you because you're building a story and you're not in the weeds of all the data. Right. I, I think that's uh, really helpful information. In addition to the challenge of numbers or scientific information, there's also 
at times this dogmatic sticking to a certain type of PowerPoint design, be it your traditional blue background, yellow writing, or your classic white background, black writing, or the inverse of that. Is that something that still has science? Is it something that's relevant? Or should I just go with whatever inspires me as I plan my PowerPoint talk? I would not say that there's science behind it. What I've seen over the years, it's a trend. We used to have just, to your point, the blue background. And then the last two years, white background is popular. And I went back and looked at my PowerPoints. Five years ago, everything was like this blue background. Last couple of years, it's white background with black. I would say whatever background you pick, it's important not to have it be distracting. I actually prefer the white background. I think that people can easily read what you have to say, but there are many, many other principles, which is don't pick a font that's distracting. We often say there's a rule called the six by six rule. No more than six bullets on a given line, no more than six words in that line. But again, in our world, everybody breaks that. Be careful that we don't put so much information on the slide. I like to tell people, you are the presentation. Our slides are just a trigger to the discussion. If you have slides that are super text heavy, as a listener, we're thinking, why don't you just give us a copy of the PowerPoint? It's too much. You have to make sure that the slides help you tell the conversation. However, we know there are different reasons, different venues, why we have to have text heavy slides. If we have to do a leave behind, if it's a more international audience, all these are good. But if you're then doing the presentation, we then like to recommend you have that show deck. It's not as many slides. They're not as content heavy. Stay away from the animation. I'm also not a big fan of builds. People sometimes will do a slide that has five different builds and they think it's because they want to incrementally give the listener the aha moments. But some people don't learn like that. Some people want to see the whole slide, and then you can use directional language to say, as we see on the y-axis, across the bottom, the blue bar indicates, be careful and mix it up. I love it when people have a robust deck that they do something different with each slide. Sometimes you might throw out a question. You might say, what do you think is happening here? And then you answer the question. The next time you say, you're all familiar with this slide, here's the one key point. The next slide is your money slide. And what you do, we call it a signaling statement. You say things like, this slide here is key. Or another signaling statement is, this slide tells the whole story. When we have that variety in the kind of talks that you're talking about, it keeps the listener engaged, opposed to doing every single slide the same way. I think these past few minutes have been really key for making our presentations better and really more engaging for our audience. 
Uh, it's my hope that following this segment of the podcast, everybody's going to be completely confident in speaking in front of the other ACMS members at the AAD or at an international meeting. But the truth is we'll still have to return back from that meeting and on Monday morning potentially manage the nurse that was tardy or the associate we're not getting along with or the next phase of negotiation for partnership with our senior colleagues in the practice. So I want to shift gears a little bit into the the smaller one-on-one small group conversation. And the two things that really come to mind is providing feedback as a type of conversation that we have. And then the uncomfortable conversation, which is is really closely tied to feedback. So what are your thoughts on approaching those sort of unpleasant conversations? Mm -hmm. I would say, first of all, we have to have them. Having crucial conversations are just a part of life. And I think what happens is we don't do them in a timely manner. We think that it may get better, but first of all, I would say try to give feedback in a timely manner. If there is something that you can compliment, and you can compliment it genuinely, Marshila, I really love how you keep me on schedule, and this really helps my day. One area of feedback that I'd like to discuss And some folks call it the sandwich technique. I'm not a big fan of the sandwich technique because people know it. It's compliment, say something bad, compliment again. I would just say be more in the moment. And if you cannot point out something wonderful or what have you that someone's doing, then you just don't say it. You're just like, I have some feedback. Are you open to hearing the feedback? As I think about this, it's really this idea of timeliness. Watch the nonverbal of that person. If they're super uncomfortable, you may choose to then only give one or two points. Maybe you had a whole laundry list. And then say what you're going to say and get silent. Give that person an opportunity to react. The other thing that I don't think we do well is our tone. We wait so long to the point where sometimes we personally are upset. And what we have to do is we have to be mindful of our tone. And more importantly than anything is we cannot take it personal. It's not personal. We're giving feedback. That's how we grow as a team. I I guess one of the things that's a little bit underutilized in communication or underemphasized perhaps is the is silence. So could you just talk more about silence as a tool, be it in feedback conversations, be it in in a negotiation? Um, What can silence do for us? Silence is everything. Do you know for myself, when I meet a speaker or I observe a speaker, I can tell the difference between somebody that is a more senior speaker because what they have and what they do well is this idea of silence. And I love it when I see it. They'll say something and then they will hover in the silence. And that whole idea of just going, what do you think this slide here communicates? And then you count three seconds. Powerful. More new speakers 
fear silence and they have to talk every single minute and they just are super uncomfortable with silence. As a result, they have a lot more fillers because they're just constantly talking. In a negotiation, it's everything. You say something and you wait and you're silent. When we are silent, it gives the listener an opportunity to process what you're saying. This is great. I, I bought a car once and I knew exactly what I wanted. And I saw the car and the sales guy was young and oh my God, he talked forever. And he would say something and I would be silent. And then I would throw out what I wanted to pay and not say a word. And he folded so quickly because he did not know how to react to, to me. And we have to be careful because adult learners, we need thinking time. If you're giving feedback to somebody and you throw out something, let that pause be there because they're probably processing what you're saying. If you're teaching residents, again, let's require something of our audience by throwing out something and then saying, group, now I want to hear from you. And then pause, don't say a word. It will give people thinking time. One of the things that makes me sad is when I've coached somebody and they've worked on their presentation and they give the presentation and they get to the end and they go, what questions do you have? And nobody asks a question and the person goes, thank you so much. And that's it. And it makes me sad because what they should have done is pause and then say, no questions, anything. You're going to prompt two, three times. And even still, we have time for a few more questions. Give people time. And even if nobody then has a question, you don't fold. You say, let me recap the three points of this presentation. That's one option. Another option is to say, all right, a frequent question I get when I give this presentation, you throw the question out and then you answer it. Guaranteed, it will jumpstart your Q&A. Silence is probably the one of the better skill sets that you can have. Again, it's something you can fake. You're nervous. Don't start talking. That's going to, it's going to show that you're nervous. Just get silent. Look back at your slide, which will trigger what you're going to say. Great. I, I think the, the use of silence can become a very empowering tool because it's a very easy thing and a safe thing to fall back on if necessary. As we were just talking, I had one additional thought, and I want to be mindful of your time here, but to what degree do you find that the pandemic has affected how we communicate? And I'll give you just a couple of buzzwords. Um, certainly, body language while wearing a mask, Zoom lectures, and I guess maybe even podcasts and, and remote lecturing. Yes, I'm going to focus on the Zoom platform. Everything that I've said so far now still relates. You have to be mindful of your body language. And the minute you enable that camera, people then see you. And I think that everybody that's listening to this now this year, it looks like we are going to have to pivot 
from the face-to-face to these virtual platforms. And to be successful, I would say there are really four buckets. Know your technology, your strong delivery skills, which we've covered, creating interaction because people don't want to be on these virtual calls, and then being concise. Now, on knowing the technology, there's just many, many platforms. Is it Zoom? Is it Adobe Connect? Is it GoToMeetings? Google it. Find out just the basic controls. That way you will be comfortable. The strong delivery skills, the two most important things are your voice, volume, inflection, your pacing, because it's virtual, you can't be talking slow, and looking at the camera. The calls that I've been on, people are looking down at their computer or they're looking at people that are in the gallery. The other key thing now is creating interaction. Throw out open-ended questions. Even if it's rhetorical, it pulls people into the meeting. The hardest, I think, for our healthcare professionals is going to be this idea of being concise. You have a deck of 30 slides. They gave you 30 minutes. It is not like our face-to-face meetings. You have to be snappy. Your pacing has to be faster. You're giving one or two points. You cannot go into the same detail. People will not stay on that call. They will have their cameras off and they'll be cleaning their room. They're not going to be listening to us because we're not bringing them value. If I had to give you other tips, I'd say always turn on that camera. Don't be late. Don't multitask because we can see it. Try to sit still if you can. No eating and limit distractions. I'm going to bring out the multitasking and limit distractions. Last week I was on a call. It was so funny. There was a doctor in his lounge chair. I looked at his toes the whole meeting. Then at one point he got up, went into the kitchen, got some food. He did not know he did not disable the camera. Do you think any of us were listening to the speaker? No. I was curious, what is he going to do next? What did he do next? He got back into his chair and he got the TV remote and he started clicking channels. This is serious and this is our new reality. Get good at it and the skills will transfer. I think that's just incredibly timely because like you said, a lot of the skills do transfer, but there's until you've done it a few times, just a certain degree of awkwardness to speaking to a webcam and really engaging the audience. And I think more and more presenters and um, I guess also the management organizations hosting these types of conferences are encouraging the use of of chat uh, programs in addition to the actual uh, webcast to make it more interactive. So Uh, It'll be interesting to see where we are in six or 12 months from now in terms of our virtual communication skills. Marshila, I want to be mindful. Go ahead. I was going to add, be careful with the whole chat. And if you are running that program, I would make sure that you have somebody else following the chat. I don't think that you can be a mindful presenter and then at the same time you're worried about the chat make sure that you have some kind of co-facilitator. 
Absolutely. I think a moderator or a co-facilitator is key in addition to the individual actually presenting. I suspect there'll be a number of listeners who will want more information about how to improve their communication skills. Marcella, what's the best way for our listeners to connect with you? Yes, my email is mdevan at elite-difference.com. Perfect. And the website is elite-difference.com as well then? Yes, www.elite-difference.com. And we are... Oh, go ahead. Nope, please. I was just going to say that we are a company that has worked with everyone from businesses to medical professions to CEO to renowned physician specialists. And I think what we do well is we understand the medical audience. I think that's absolutely true. And the first thing I'll do when I have the raw audio of this podcast is go through and listen to how many times I used one of those dreaded connectors or filler words in today's conversation. I've not heard them. <laughs> well, I want to certainly thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat with me today. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. Um, the contact information will be available through the ACMS website as well. Uh, I encourage all of our listeners to share this podcast with their colleagues and trainees. I think when it's something like communication, that audience can extend well beyond just most surgeon or physicians. Please, as listeners, let us know how we're doing and who else you'd like to have on the show by contacting us at info at Thank you again, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mohs Surgery.